All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll have the scriptures on the screen, but it's always good to practice finding them in your Bible. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, if you don't, there's some Bibles under the chairs in some places there. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, Dr. Luke, the only Gentile writer in the Bible. But he was a doctor, so he was very detailed, very analytical, and uh, Dr. Luke does, in the first three chapters, give us the most extensive account of the, um, the birth of Christ, starting with Mary's supernatural touch from God, supernaturally impregnated, no human male involved. We're just going to look at a portion of Luke's account this morning from chapter 2. And even as I mentioned the fact that um, no human male involved, God truly is the Father of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I think most of us know this, but the reason that we had to have a virgin birth, which was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, and even back in Genesis, when God pronounced the curse upon the man, the woman, and the serpent because of what happened there in the Garden of Eden with the serpent seducing, enticing the woman to partake of the fruit which God said they could not partake of. Isn't that just like a human? In that beautiful garden with all the wonderful fruits and perhaps vegetables, we don't know what all was there, but we know that everything that was needed for their sustenance was there in the garden. And out of all those things, there was only one thing God said they couldn't have. So what did they want? Isn't that human nature? You can have all of this. Oh, but I want that. So we know that as a result, the man was cursed. He was going to have to work. Rather than just being able to stroll through the garden and, oh, look, that looks good, you know, and just a nice, easy life, well, now he would be cursed with the toiling in the soil by the sweat of his brow, and the soil would bring forth thorns and thistles, and all the things that you don't want to grow would grow, and the things you do want to grow wouldn't. Do we know about that? I've talked about this before, that you don't have to work hard at all to grow a bunch of weeds, do you? They just pop up, baby. But if you want a nice garden, if you want some beautiful flowers, some vegetables, whatever, it takes a lot of work. And so that's the curse that was put upon man, for his disobedience. For the woman, it was pain in childbirth. And we know that that's a fact. Even us men who haven't physically experienced it ourselves, uh, we're well aware, as much as we can be, of what women go through in giving birth. It's, I'm told it's probably the most painful thing you can experience. And that's part of the miracle is yet... Women are willing to endure that, and in many cases, two, three, four, five times. And in fact, my grandmother had eight kids, and her father had 20. His, he had about 10. The first wife died. You can imagine why. And then the next wife had 10 more. I don't know where they all are, but they're out there somewhere. The, the relatives, you know what I mean? And I won't tell you what state they're from, <laughs> but it's called Arkansas. <laughs> There's a joke I'd like to tell, but I won't. 
Ah, never mind. <laughs> so, but now, and the curse for the serpent would be that he'd crawl along the ground on his belly. So many theologians believe that that indicates that the serpent, prior to the curse, prior to the fall, uh, perhaps walked upright. Uh, it would appear that he had the power of speech. Again, we don't know a lot about what went on there in the garden with all the animals and so forth, but we know that Satan was the serpent. But there was a bright side to all this, and that is that God also told the woman that her, from her seed would come the one who would defeat and destroy Satan. And he doesn't mention anything about the seed of the man. It's merely the seed of the woman. And there's great significance in that. I'll go back and read it to you. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. This is chapter 3, verse uh, 16. Multiply your sorrow and your conception. and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's not the part that... I, oh, back, let me back up a few verses here. He's telling the serpent in verse 14, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, you know, strife, warfare, opposition... I will put enmity between you and the woman. Why not the man? Where's the man in all this? I'll explain this in a moment. Between your seed and her seed, he, who is he? He shall bruise your head. He is the seed of the woman. And you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of the coming of Christ, the Messiah, through the bloodline of the woman. And that ultimately... The Messiah, Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the serpent. That happened when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Satan's power over us was destroyed. Death no longer rules over us, but we can have in Christ eternal life because of the blood that he shed on the cross of Calvary. But the, the point I'm making here, the seed of the woman, the Bible tells us in various places that the, the sin is passed on through the male bloodline because Adam was the head of his family, his wife. He was her covering. He should have prevented her from doing what she did, but he didn't. Instead, he participated in it. And so Paul writes that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. So in order to have a perfect sinless sacrifice in the Messiah, the spotless, perfect, sinless Lamb of God, there couldn't be a human male involved so we have the female and we have god himself placing within the virgin mary his son jesus christ and so we pick it up here in luke 2 1 let's pray father god we ask your blessing upon this study this morning as we take a look once again at the birth of our lord and savior jesus christ we ask you to bless this time of bible study lord feed our spirits that we might be able to celebrate Christmas the way it should be celebrated with the focus on you, Lord, and your one and only Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. A census was to be taken. Now Caesar Augustus, we know there were a long line of these Roman emperors, but Caesar Augustus reigned in Rome from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. That was a total reign of about 40, 41 years. Now, it's also believed, though, that our modern calendar is off by about three or four years, meaning Jesus was probably born more around 4 A.D. to 3 A.D., three or four years before the date that we now operate by. But we're told that Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be registered or a census should be taken in the Roman world. Caesar wanted to know how many people he was ruling over in the entire Roman Empire, which stretched over a broad expanse across Europe and the Middle East. One of the reasons he wanted to know, of course, the more people you're ruling over, the more bragging rights you have. But also, he wanted to know how much money could be extracted from his many vassal states through taxation. This census first took place, verse 2, while Quirinius was governing Syria. This guy Quirinius was actually governor of Syria twice. The first time from 4 B.C. to A.D. 1, which is when this, the time period in which this census was taken, and then again from A.D. 6 to 10. These are things that we know historically from extra-biblical resources. So all went to be registered, verse 3, everyone to his own city. Or it could be translated ancestral home. Just like perhaps so many of us, our relatives going back however many generations, emigrated from some other part of the world. And many times they would, of course, come to, if they're coming from Europe, they would come to New York, they'd go to Ellis Island, have to go through that process. Uh, Irish, Italian, you name it. Germans, people from all over Europe initially. And then, of course, over time, they would build a new life in America. They would have children, grandchildren. The families would begin to spread out. Some would move farther west, midwest. But uh, their roots would go back to New York City, for example, Boston, somewhere on the East Coast. And so it was true also for these folks in ancient Israel. The, their own city would be the, where the origins of their family were. And so they were retired to return to the city where the records of their families were kept. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David. Now, of course, Nazareth is up in the north in the region of Galilee, around 20 miles or so from the Sea of Galilee. And it was about 90 miles south to Bethlehem. So we can see that Joseph's family at some point had made a migration. Also true of Mary's family because she's also of the line of David. Bethlehem was called the city of David, obviously because it was the place of David's birth. And he was such a significant person. 
within the history of the Jewish people, the greatest king, the man after God's own heart, and so forth. So his descendants had to return there to register for the census. This, by the way, is important because it confirms Jesus' legal right to the throne through his adoptive father, Joseph. And it's amazing when you look at all the details surrounding the birth of Christ, although by most people's standards, you wouldn't expect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be born in a little tiny town in a cave, right? Not, he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born into a wealthy family of high standing. But when you look at all the intricate details surrounding his birth, it's just amazing what God has done to confirm to us in so many ways that he really is the Messiah. And one of the many ways is that even though he had no earthly father, of course, Joseph became his adoptive father, if you will, and that gave him a legal right to the throne of David because Joseph was from the line of David. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And there's another really cool thing in this prophecy in the book of Micah, about 500 years before Christ or so. It refers to him, the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Right there, Micah confirms that the coming Messiah would be God because this description could only apply to God. Goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I Am. And we see that subtly introduced here in the book of Micah. So verse 5, Joseph goes there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Again, as I mentioned, the reason, one of the reasons Mary accompanied Joseph is because she had to go to that same city to register because she was also from the line of David. Most theologians... Bible scholars, whatever you want to call them, knowledgeable people regarding the Scriptures, believe that the, the uh, lineage recorded in Luke chapter 3 is that of Mary, while the lineage in Matthew 1 is that of Joseph, and both lineages trace back to David. And notice it, it calls her, Luke refers to her here as Joseph's betrothed wife. Now, technically, betrothed means engaged. But as you probably know, in biblical times, in ancient Israel, and this has been true of many other societies and cultures as well, but betrothal or engagement was considered just as legally binding as a full-blown marriage. You were already considered married, basically, except you had not yet consummated the marriage physically, if you know what I mean. So here they were, betrothed, traveling as a married couple, but they would not yet, not yet com- consummated their marriage physically. Matthew one twenty five. Joseph did not know her. We all know what that means in the Bible when it says to know her. It's to love her. That's an old song. To know, know, know her. Or I think it's know him, but it can go either way. He did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus just as Gabriel had told him to do. 
But again, the purpose that, of that being that there could be no doubt that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but that indeed God was his father. Verse 6, so it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And this is actually another important reason for Mary to accompany Joseph on this journey, apart from the fact that she also had to register there. She was very near her due date. Obviously, Joseph would not want to be away from her when she's on the verge of giving birth. He wanted to be there to support her, watch over her. And so the time does come while they are there. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Notice she brought forth her firstborn son, indicating there were others to follow. Matthew 12, 47, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. In fact, Jesus' brothers, Jude, James, became New Testament writers and prominent men in the early church. They did not believe in him, actually, till after his resurrection. But his brothers, his family members did. Mary, of course, knew all along. John 7, 3, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. Sounds like they were just trying to get rid of him, I think. But he did have brothers, but he was the firstborn, the firstborn son of Mary and the only son of God the Father. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, you know, and of course, it does kind of give you the image of some kind of poor little baby, sad and lowly, wrapped in rags, but... Actually, this was a common practice in the Near East in biblical times. They would wrap an infant, narrow bands of cloth wrapped around a newborn child to restrain its movements and to calm it, keep it quiet. So this was a normal procedure. And laid him in a manger, which of course you know is a feeding trough for animals in a stall or a stable. Now, tradition says that Jesus was born in a cave. My wife and I have been to that place that they believe is the spot there in Bethlehem. It's very difficult to even go to Bethlehem these days because of all the unrest uh, with the uh, Islamic populace. It's actually part of the Palestinian Authority at this point. Some tourists do go there uh, occasionally, but it's getting more and more difficult. But So if indeed he was born in this cave, it's possible and even likely that the manger may have been cut out of the rock wall. So you can kind of picture little baby Jesus there in this little feeding trough carved out of a rock wall. We remember the story because there was no room for them. All the inns were filled up because of everyone had come for the census, kind of like Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta. You can't get a room. I know Nikki and uh, Michael had their wedding. I think it was his grandmother that had to stay way out in Moriarty because she couldn't get a room in town because they got married on the weekend of Balloon Fiesta. So this is what it was like there in Bethlehem, just packed out. So they wind up in this cave, which was a place where they kept the livestock. And that's why we see the depictions like the one we have on the front table there. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, 
keeping watch over their flock by night. And so this is one of the many reasons we know that Jesus, about 99.9% sure that he was not born on December 25th. We know that that was something the Emperor Constantine did as he had made a, a profession of faith, a conversion to Christianity, and was trying to kind of amalgamate the pagan holiday of winter solstice with the Christian holiday of celebrating the birth of Christ. So they picked that date of December 25th. But you know what? I don't think Jesus minds as long as we are truly celebrating his birth in our hearts. If I didn't know my birthday, I'd want somebody to set a date for me, or I'd set one myself, I guess. He knows his birthday, and one day we're going to find out, when were you really born, Lord? But the fact that these shepherds were out in the field indicates this was probably not in the wintertime. And some scholars believe Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, and they base that, at least in part, on this verse in John 1.14. The Word, big W, Jesus is the Word, the Logos. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're talking about here this morning. The incarnation, the birth of Christ, God in human form, Emmanuel, like the song that we sang this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and Peter, remember? And they saw Jesus in all of His glory. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When it says here in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some have suggested that this could also be translated, tabernacled among us, made His dwelling place among us. And so there's this idea that it would have made perfect sense for Jesus to have been born on or near the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also known as the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. And it begins five days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on the 15th of Tishri, which is either in September or October because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, whereas our calendar is a solar calendar. So the months are kind of combined based upon our calendar. September slash October. So it's quite possible that Jesus was born in the fall. Again, the most important thing to know is that he really was born and that he's alive forevermore. And in spite of all the opposition that we see today in celebrating Christmas, and, of course, we know the enemy has done his best to try to pollute and dilute the meaning and the message of Christmas. In case you haven't noticed, it's still being celebrated all over the world. And as I mentioned in my opening prayer, we could easily make the case that it's the most important event in human history. Because without the birth of Christ, the human race would basically have no hope. He is our hope. He is our sure and certain hope. So here are these shepherds out there, much like King David, almost, uh, you know, a thousand years earlier, 900 years earlier, David was out there guarding his flocks by night. And as you probably would imagine, 
the flock was most vulnerable to attack from wild animals in the darkness of night. Many of these uh, predatory beasts are nocturnal. In fact, Jesus, there's a great correlation in the teachings of Christ because he's talking about those whose deeds are evil and he says they do them under cover of darkness. But we're the children of the light. We're the children of the day. When God shines his light into our lives, he exposes those dark corners, those hidden things, and brings them to light so that we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, we can be renewed. So even as these wild beasts would attack the flock in the night, those whose deeds are evil do so under cover of darkness. And so we need the good shepherd watching over and guarding us. And Jesus is our good shepherd, and he watches over us 24-7. Do you take comfort in that? You should. Verse 9, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And that tends to happen for very important events, and especially when they're related to the Son of God, but in other times throughout the Scriptures. One or more angels would show up. So the angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And it's funny because I think a lot of times believers think, boy, I'd sure love to see an angel. But in the scriptures, whenever people saw angels, it scared them half to death. Because angels are incredible beings. It's probably not Gabriel because Gabriel had already been identified in Luke's story by name more than once, and yet there's no name mentioned. So it just tells us an angel of the Lord. They were greatly afraid, and so we know this is the natural, normal response to being the presence of God and His angels, but that's not such a bad thing, really, because Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, in fact, in the book of Jude, Jude gives us a warning against mocking celestial beings, which some, these wild and crazy preachers and Christians are prone to do to mock the devil now he has been defeated his head has been crushed by jesus christ but i think we'd be better off to leave the mocking to jesus as pastor chuck smith always used to say i like to keep the lord between me and the devil the lord rebuke you that's what michael the archangel told satan when they argued over the body of moses in the book of jude michael said the lord rebuke you I'm an imperfect sinner saved by grace. I'd much rather the perfect sinless Son of God rebuke the devil on my behalf. Because the devil has plenty of accusations to throw at me. He is the accuser of the brethren. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Just as Gabriel had told Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he was visited by Gabriel and told that his wife would have a baby. Elizabeth was going to bring forth the prophet John, John the Baptist. Gabriel appeared and Zechariah was scared. He said, don't be afraid. Mary, the angel told her, Gabriel told her, don't be afraid. I've got good news for you. This was in Luke 1.13, Luke 1.30. God does send his spirit and his angels to comfort us, not to make us fearful. Hebrews 1.14 says, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? 
So initially, if we actually were to have an angelic encounter, it might be a little bit scary, but the purpose is that they're there to comfort us, to comfort us, to encourage us, not to make us fearful. Don't be afraid. Why? I bring you good tidings, the good news. The good news, if you will. The word angel means is uh, angelos in the Greek. It means messenger. It can apply to human beings also, sent by God to bring good news of his salvation to others. Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And that verse is quoted again in Romans chapter 10. The angel, the messenger, whether it be a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger, bringing the good news of great joy. And I've mentioned to you probably more than once recently how we need to really allow God to impart to us that joy. The scriptures tell us the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is not circumstantial, by the way. Happiness is. Happiness is fleeting. You could be happy one moment and bummed out the next, couldn't you? Because that's an emotional thing. Joy, true joy, the joy we receive from God through the Holy Spirit is not circumstantial. It doesn't depend upon your circumstances. It depends upon your position. And if you are a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've got a lot to be joyful about. Because you have eternal life. You have forgiveness of sin. If God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We need to remind ourselves of these things daily, folks, so that the joy of the Lord can well up within us and no situation or circumstance can rob us of our joy. 1 Peter 1.8 Peter's talking here about Jesus, of course. He says, Whom, whom having not seen... You love. How many of you here today can say that? I haven't seen Jesus with my physical eyes, but I sure do love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And yet we know that not everyone believes, not everyone, in fact, more do not believe than do believe. So why does he say to all people? Because the message of salvation is universal. It cuts across all ethnic, social, and economic barriers. John 3, 16, we all know it, right? What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The good tidings of great joy, it's for everybody. But it's up to you individually to receive it. We know that many in Jesus' day didn't receive it. That's why he wound up crucified. But that was all part of God's plan. And then we go on to verse 11. For there is born to you this day... In the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ, Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is Christ the Lord. Now, 
the angel ascribes three titles to Jesus here. One, he refers to him as the Savior. And again, people who don't know the Lord, who haven't received Christ, they haven't been born again, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, you know, you say, well, have you been saved? They go, saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? And hopefully they would ask that question, right? And we can tell them. Because we need to be saved from our sins. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We all need salvation. So the first title that the angel ascribes to Jesus is that of Savior. Secondly, Christ, Messiah, Anointed One. The Holy One of God, that one very special individual, the promised Messiah. We read about the promise way back in Genesis 3. It was fulfilled when Christ came into this world. And then he's also referred to as the Lord, which would make him Yahweh or God. Jesus was and is both God and man. Fully God, fully man. And this will be the sign to you, verse 12. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, I don't know if you pick up on this. It's kind of subtle, but the angel makes the assumption that the shepherds will go see the baby. He says, this will be the sign to you. I know you're going. It's kind of like that my pillow guy. It's like... Mike Lindell, I forget what he's, he says, I know you will, I don't know if he will what, if you buy it or sleep on it or, that's the part that sticks out in my mind from his commercial, I know you will, <laughs> Mike Lindell, he's a believer by the way, good salesman too, some of you might get a pillow for Christmas this year, you just <laughs> never know, you, I know you will. <laughs> or I know you would, maybe it's... He sees those people in the mirror. He opens up the cabinet there, and they're on the other side. Hey, you're that pillow guy. We're sleeping great now. I knew you would. Or, uh, whatever it is. There's no doubt to the angel that the shepherds will take up the call to go and see the baby. He assumes they're going to go. And I guess we could rightly say that anyone who takes the Bible and the gospel message seriously will seek Jesus out. One of, the, one of the stickers, bumper stickers, you sometimes see around Christmas time, wise men still seek him. The wise men sought him out 2,000 years ago. The shepherds are on the verge of seeking him out. And wise men still seek him today. This will be the sign to you, a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, which again wasn't all that unusual, but this part was lying in a manger. The cloths were common, but you wouldn't normally find a newborn baby in the feeding trough of barred yarn animals. So he should be easy to spot. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men. So one angel appears with the initial announcement and then a whole host of angels appears suddenly with him 
joining the angel, addressing the shepherds, and they all begin to praise God together. And although it doesn't specifically say singing, I mean, I've always envisioned that that's exactly what they were doing. They were praising God. I just envisioned this humongous heavenly choir singing praises to the newborn king. Glory to God in the highest. You see, something that people often miss, and perhaps that affects their ability to understand God, to understand Jesus, to relate to Him, to accept Him. Glory to God in the highest. The ultimate goal of man's salvation through the Savior, Jesus Christ, is to bring glory to God. For He alone is worthy. Yeah. Come, all ye faithful. And then we throw a little tag on the end. For He alone is worthy. Sing it with me. For He alone is worthy. For He alone is worthy. Christ the Lord. See, as human beings, we tend to be very self focused and self-centered, don't we? Ultimately, our salvation, He created us. It's for His glory. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In Him, Christ, we also, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. See how it's all about Him? that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. It means for the display of His character, to show the whole world that our God is a loving, merciful, gracious, faithful, heavenly Father. Ephesians 1.13, the next verse down, 13 and 14. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So God now has imparted to us His Holy Spirit, and that is the seal, guaranteeing our inheritance. What is our inheritance? Eternal life in Christ. Living forever with God in paradise. Until the redemption of the purchased possession, meaning we've already been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but our ultimate redemption will be when we are no longer living in these corruptible, perishable bodies, but we have immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, eternal bodies, and then our redemption will be complete. Until the redemption of the purchased possession, again, why? Or for what purpose? To the praise of His glory. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear somebody give a testimony and they, they tell you about their life, what it was like before Jesus, you know, maybe they had a drug addiction problem, maybe they had a, whatever it might be. We all have our issues in life, right? And unfortunately, many times people try to downplay them, sweep them under the rug, right? That's the worst thing you can do. Just... Come clean with God. Admit who you really are. He already knows. You can't hide anything from Him. 
Jesus died for the least, the most insignificant sin to the greatest sin. It doesn't matter. It only takes one sin to make you a sinner. It doesn't matter whether you stole a pencil off the teacher's desk or shot somebody on Central Avenue. Now, in one respect, there's a, ma- there's a massive difference. But in God's eyes, from his perspective, you're either perfect or you're not. He's perfect, we're not. But when you hear somebody's testimony and you go, man, I would have never thought of you like that. Because you know them as a believer. And you see the Holy Spirit in them, right? You see the love of God in them. And then they begin to tell you what they used to be like. And you go, oi vey. <laughs> no, praise God. Wow. And there are those people that you think, well, I don't think they could ever get saved. And somewhere out there, somebody thought that about you. Right? And so when it happens, it's a miracle. We can't possibly emphasize enough how miraculous it is when somebody comes to Christ. And when you look around and you see how many people reject him, push him away, ignore him, deny him, then you see, wow, it really is a miracle when somebody gets saved. And yet it happens all the time because God is a miraculous God. But it's ultimately for the praise of his glory. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Mankind can and will only know true peace when they come to know the Prince of Peace. Without Jesus in your heart, Jesus in your life, you'll never truly know peace. We can try to simulate it, fabricate it, imitate it, but the only way to truly know peace is to know the Prince of Peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. John 14, 27, Jesus made this promise to his followers, to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus promised us that peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You see, true peace is not external. It's internal. It's inside when the Son of God comes to live inside of you. Then the angel says, goodwill toward men. And here's where it gets a little tricky. Let me read from a couple other translations. The New American Standard Bible, and on earth peace among men with whom he, God, is pleased. Peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. Is God pleased with everyone? No, he's not. Because there are many who choose to live their lives apart from him, serving themselves. That's not pleasing to God. And again, because we are all fallen sinners, the only way that God could ever be pleased with us if he looks down and sees Jesus superimposed over us. And that's what happens when you receive Christ. The Bible tells us we are covered with his robes of righteousness. 
We have no righteousness of our own. The only righteousness we have is that which God gives to us, graciously grants to us when we confess our sins to Him and invite Jesus to come and live inside of us, then we are clothed with His robes of righteousness. The only way that God can ever be pleased with you is when you receive His Son, whom He sent into this world to die for you. You humble yourself before Him. You confess your sins. You repent and turn the reins of your heart, of your life, over to God. The NIV says... Goodwill toward men and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, I can't imagine that there would be anyone who would not want God's favor to rest on them, and yet there are those who, again, are very hostile towards God, the whole idea of God, the concept of God, his son Jesus Christ, and they don't want anything to do with him. And so this good news, although... Again, the, the salvation message is universal. There's not one person on this planet, past, present, or future, that Jesus did not die for. That's good news. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But this promised peace this inner peace, this goodwill is only for those with whom he is pleased, to those on whom his favor rests. And again, it's not a matter that you have to earn it, you have to be good enough, you have to work hard enough. You simply have to humble yourself and say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. I know I'm a sinner. I need salvation. Please forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me with the precious blood of Christ and come and live inside of me. And then God's favor will rest upon you. Then he will be pleased with you. Not because you're perfect. In fact, that's one of those great sayings that I like. People expect Christians to be perfect, don't they? They just don't understand. If we could be perfect, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to die on the cross. We are not perfect. We're just forgiven. That is a... No, by no means an excuse to go on sinning, by the way. But it is absolutely the truth. We are not perfect, we're just forgiven, and forgiveness is available to anybody who wants it. Verse 15, So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let's go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they realized they'd had a supernatural visitation from God in the personage of this angel and then the many angels surrounding him. And they said, let's get on down there. We've got to see this. So the angels had gone away from them into heaven. They've done their job. They brought the message. And angels do travel back and forth between heaven and earth. One day we will too. Genesis 28, 12. Then he, Jacob, dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, Jacob's ladder, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob had a dream, and in the dream God showed him how the angels, I don't think they really literally use a ladder, but that's way, that was God's way of giving Jacob that message. The angels do. They, they travel back and forth between heaven and earth. They are God's messengers. 
They are his ministering spirits. So they said, let us go. The thing that I like about this is, when God speaks to us, how many of you believe that he does? He absolutely does. We should be quick to respond, as were these shepherds. They didn't say, well, it's kind of late, guys. Let's get a good night's shut-eye, and we'll go check it out in the morning. When you look at the book of Mark, especially that gospel, it's the shortest gospel. It's considered the most rapid-paced gospel imparted by Peter to Mark, we believe. Mark's gospel was taken from the words of Peter. And Peter was that kind of guy, wasn't he? Man of action. Walk on water. Oh, Jesus can do it, I can do it. Whoa, what am I doing? You know. Very fast-paced gospel. And in the book of Mark, we really get that sense when Christ went and began to call his disciples. He's walking along the, the shore of Galilee, and he's calling them, and he's not waiting for them to come along. He, he keeps going. Drop your nets and follow me, and they did it right then and there. That's the kind of response that should happen when you have that revelation that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It should solicit and an immediate response, a quick response, just like these shepherds. So they said, let us go now. Now, I don't know if they left one guy behind to watch the sheep or if they just trusted God to take care of them, but they definitely listened to that angel and they responded, and they came with haste. Now, they were probably in pretty good shape, those shepherds living out there in the fields. They may have even ran, just like John and Peter ran to the tomb to see what had become of Jesus. They came with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this. I mentioned earlier how we love him even though we haven't seen him. They saw him, they were blessed to see the baby Jesus. But even though we haven't seen him with our physical eyes, we have something even better. John twenty twenty nine. remember Thomas said, I don't believe it. Thomas missed the first meeting, the first post-resurrection meeting with the disciples on the night of the resurrection. Thomas wasn't there. The other guys told him, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. I don't believe it. Doubting Thomas. So the next week, Jesus shows up again. Thomas is there. Jesus shows him his wounds in his hand, his side, and Thomas is totally humbled. And he says, my Lord and my God. Now he believed. He had seen but Jesus tells Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. That's good. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That would be all of us here today. And again, 1 Peter 1.8. I'll read it again. Whom you having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that is part of the miracle of Christmas, I would say. The ability to believe given to us by God. Talk about the miracle. The ability to believe. Not because it's not true, it is true. Not because it's not real, it is real. But with our damaged hearts and minds, that's what sin does to you. Just as a physical disease will damage parts of your body, various internal organs, depending upon what affliction you have. The disease of sin damages you in your heart and your mind, 
And it's a miracle when God imparts to you the ability to believe in the truth. And it results in a change of heart and a change of mind. That's the greatest gift you could ever receive. New life in Christ. Whatever else you may get this year for Christmas, whatever the gifts you might hand out, Nothing is greater than the gift of God, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So they saw him. And what did they do next? They headed over to Starbucks. <laughs> well, no, they didn't have Starbucks. But they had that, probably had that Turkish coffee. Have you ever had that? That's that stuff that's thick like mud. Very popular in Israel. They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this. Uh, one translation says they spread the word. And so again, we should follow the example of these shepherds. Our response to hearing the message of the gospel and seeing Jesus through the Holy Spirit in our case, they saw him physically. And think about the, think about the faith involved. The angel says, hey, he's come, the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. But all they see is a little baby wrapped up tight in these swaddling, swaddling cloths, laying in a probably a carved-out rock manger in the wall. And yet, by the Spirit of God, they could see that baby as the Savior of the world. They made it widely known. Our response should be the same as that of the shepherds who saw the baby Jesus in the manger some 2,000 years ago. We should make it widely known, should we not? And celebrate, not just one day, but every day of the year, celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the miracle of Christmas. Lord, it doesn't really matter what the true date is. And that's just another name for Jesus' birthday. Christ's Mass. A service a gathering celebrating the birth of Christ. It's really a birthday party for Jesus. Instead of giving him gifts, he's given us the greatest gift. But Lord, we can. You've given us the ability to give you a gift, and that is simply to give you our lives, give you ourselves, yield ourselves over to you, submit ourselves to you as our creator, the savior of our souls. So we pray right now, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't done that, they haven't yielded their life over to you, we pray that this very morning they would do that, that they would receive the greatest gift they could ever receive, the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and that they would in turn, as we read in the book of Romans, present themselves to you as a living sacrifice. Help us all to do that every day, Lord. It requires a daily yielding of ourselves over to you. Thank you, Father, for this time of year. It is such a joyful time for those of us who know you, love you, believe in you, and help us to do what the shepherds did, not only to uh, respond very quickly to your call, to your revelation, but also to make it widely known as you give us opportunity to share with family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, whatever arena of life we may find ourselves in, that we would make the truth about Jesus Christ widely known.
And Lord, we know it's your job to touch their hearts. It's simply our job to put the message out there. Help us to be faithful. Lord, we talked this morning about how it's all ultimately about you and for you, because of you. It's to the praise of your glory. Help us to keep that in mind, Lord. It's not all about us. It's all about you. And we love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.